Are you looking to buy or sell a home? Wondering where to start? Do you have questions about mortgage and real estate and need honest, accurate answers? Well, you're in the right place. Welcome to The Educated Home Buyer with expert real estate broker, Jeb Smith, and certified mortgage consultant, Josh Lewis, where we discuss everything you need to know to buy right, borrow smart, and build wealth through real estate ownership. Welcome back. We are here once again live to answer your mortgage and real estate questions. Once again, I have Mr. Josh Lewis with me. Josh, welcome to the show. Well, we're happy to be here. We got a whole new year and uh, we'll, uh, we'll have lots of questions and fun things to go through and unpack. Absolutely. So between last week and this week, not really a lot on the news front until, say, today. Um, you've got, you know, PPI coming out, uh, retail sales, both disappointing, which obviously sent the stock market down, but it helped the 30, I mean, helped mortgage bonds. Right. And in turn, the, the 10 year is now sitting under 3.4. Josh, is that, is that right? I think we ended at three, three, seven. Let's click over there and take a three, three, seven. 337, um, which is below, I believe a threshold and headed in the right direction hasn't had a huge impact on interest rates yet, but we're actually going to talk about that here in a little bit more detail um, as we dive into that as well as some charts. So Josh, let's talk first about interest rates, where we are at the moment. Um, you can also pitch the community there and the updates in that as well. Absolutely. Well, we actually had a comment here. Um, David is saying he's in the market, great credit, but he's at six and a half. Um, really shouldn't have anyone at six and a half with with good credit. Um, so if you're in that situation, reach out. Jeff can get you referred to someone in your area that can give you a second opinion. Maybe there's a valid reason for it. Maybe not. Um, most of the clients we're looking at are, are in the low sixes, six and an eight, six and a quarter. Jeb, you are doing a video today and we're kind of running through some numbers. And most of those scenarios um, without paying a, a bunch of points were in the, in the low sixes. Um, zero points at six and a half would be a pretty lucrative loan for someone with good credit right now. So um, on the government side, again, the good credit ones are are down near the near the five and a half percent range without paying any points, and all the way down into the the low fives. I even priced one here recently. Borrower would have had to pay a, a per point point and a quarter for it, but five point nine nine on a non owner occupied loan investment property. They were putting a big down. They have eight hundred credit scores. They were very good borrowers, but um, even with that all taken into consideration, those rates are a lot better than where we were uh, a month or so ago, especially two, three months back when we started seeing the, the cooler CPI figures coming through. So rates um, definitely elevated uh, from where they were last year. If we do a year over year comparison, Jeb, it's more than two and a half percent higher than it was last year. So there's no, yeah. no two ways about it. Rates are a good bit higher than where they were a year ago, a good bit lower than where they were 90 days ago. But the trend is good. And the trend is your friend. The trend is your friend. Yeah. So the, the fact that we're seeing, you know, things level off and we're going to talk about a slide here in just a minute that, you know, we, we, we often, you know, here if you, on the show, if you hear us talk, you know, interest rates tend to follow inflation, um, historically speaking. And, you know, while inflation is coming down, interest rates are coming down and moderating some. Um, and, and everyone looks at the 10 year as kind of the signal as, as to, you know, the direction of interest rates. But what we've seen is kind of a big, big drop in the 10 year recently, but not so much of that drop has translated into mortgage rates. And I think a lot of it has to do with 
expectations, you know, what the Fed is going to do, right? Some of the numbers coming out, what's going to happen over over the next couple of months. And so, you know, a lot of you guys watch my other videos. And in those videos, we often talk about, you know, expectations and, and what have you. And one of the things is, I don't think you're going to see a lot of movement um, in some of these in interest rates per se. And when I say a lot of movement, you're not going to see a, you know, probably, a, you know, 1% drop, you know, you're not going to see three quarters of a percent drop quickly uh, just because of some of the data that's, that's out there um, and, and the expectation and, and the waiting of that data to actually come into fruition. So while we're on this, Josh, let's get into some charts here and, and just kind of update like we always do to get started. So the first chart here is inventory. Um, as you can see from this chart here, inventory is still down from where it was a couple of months ago, uh, but it did tick up a little bit week over week. So we've got a little bit more inventory than we did a week ago, still down from a couple of months ago, just because of you know people pulling their, market, their houses off the market during the holidays. And you can kind of see if you were to go back here, and look at the charts, you, it's an ebb and flow, right? You have ups and downs in those numbers. And right now, you know, we're kind of, we're, we're at the point where you're probably going to see a trough, right? And you're going to see inventory levels start to pick back up. Uh, but let's go back to that one more time. Up in the corner there, you'll see Orange County today inventory, 2,510 properties. That's less than last week. So even though inventory nationwide is picked up, we actually have less properties available here in Orange County this week. Now, why is that? Well, some people hold their homes off the market. Some people had expired listings, right? They, they're they no longer on the market for one reason or another. Some listings actually went into escrow. People are still buying properties. Imagine that. Uh, Huntington Beach, 171, about where we were last week. So we've seen new properties come to the market. We've seen some fall off. We've seen some go into escrow, so on and so forth. So at the moment, as we've discussed, you're not going to see a big pickup in inventory uh, just because of seasonality for one. Um, also, housing affordability is still a lot a big problem for a lot of people. And, and there's a lot of sellers out there that would be buyers that aren't doing anything yet. So as we move into mid-February or so, those numbers should start to increase quite a bit. Uh, chart here. Uh, so you know, the, the title of this, this video is Inflation is Dead. Um, and in looking at this chart, if you look at the last six months, if you an annualize the last six months of, of the, the CPI data that we've actually had, we're, we're sitting at 1.8% on a six-month run, um, which is below the Fed's target of 2%. Now, I'm in no way saying in July we're going to be at 2%, uh, but we're headed in the right direction, right? And and as you're going to see here in just a moment from one of the charts we're going to well, pull up. Yeah, but before yeah. you roll off from that one, yeah. you're not going out on a limb if you say it's going to be at 2%, because as no. we said, the, the number is a total of the last 12 months, month over month figures. If you take the last six months, it's at 1.8%. So if you're saying you don't think we're going to be at 2% when we get to the end of June and those are July and those June figures come out, you're saying that you think inflation is going to accelerate over the next six months. And, and you're going to talk about that in another slide here in a second. Um, but there's really no reason to expect that. And the next two slides you have there go a long ways to explain the biggest tailwind we have towards lower interest rates or lower inflation figures. Yeah. And so the one of the things, uh, you know, the Fed uses, um, well, the Fed doesn't, it, one, one of the calculations in the inflation numbers is owner's equivalent rent. Um, and, and how they calculate these rents is a bit difficult for 
to comprehend, if you will. Uh, but th the reality is rents are coming down. And because of how that data is actually calculated and used in the metric, it hasn't reflected the decline in in rents over the last three to four months. And so what you're going to see here over the next couple of months is as rents come down, it's going to start to have an impact in that inflation number, which is going to essentially bring that inflation number down faster. And that's more or less what this graph shows here is the, the tenant repeat index. Like when they're signing a new lease, it's not continuing to grow in that monthly amount. And therefore that's going to reflect in lower inflation numbers. And Jeb, an important distinction is we're not saying rents are coming down. Rents are nope. not coming down. They're just they not going accelerating. up at a much slower pace than what they were previously. So the way that filters in to the CPI figures is going to be um, a lower amount. In CPI, a large chunk of the CPI figure is made up of, of housing. And when these numbers moderate, it's going to be another reason why those CPI reads are going to come down over the next several months. Now, cool. And, and Josh, this is a slide that that you sent me um, came from, I think, Barry Habib, uh, which we we quote quite a bit on the show, um, you know, kind of a guru when it comes to the prediction of mortgage rates. But the, I, I took some time to highlight the bottom there because, you know, we're always talking about new inflation numbers coming out, the Fed, so on and so forth. So what this does here is it shows what essentially is expected to happen going all the way out until May at the moment with regards to CPI numbers, how they're looking year over year. And so the numbers for uh, January are actually going to be reported on February 14th. But an important thing to note here is that the Fed is actually going to meet on February 1st. So that's when they're going to make their decision on the Fed funds rate. And as you can see here in a, a slide coming up, the probability is essentially 100% for them doing a 25-point basis hike at that point. But what we're saying here is that in the in February on February 14th, the January numbers are going to be released. It's a high replacement on, on overall core, a low replacement on shelter. It may be hard to see any mean of, meaningful progress. So what they're saying there is that you might not see a big dip in inflation. It might be, you know, a small decline um, based on shelter and how some other things are reported, like we just said. And then you go on in in, in March fourteenth, uh, the February numbers are are being replaced. Those are high replacement high replacements on both core and shelter. Should see inflation drop on that one. March CPI is released on April twelfth. Low replacement on core, high replacement on shelter will be hard to see any progress. And then the April CPI, which is released on May 10th. Now that's a high replacement on core and shelter. And this continues for the entire quarter. And May 10th should be the start of a big improvement in interest rates. So Josh, what are your thoughts on that slide? When you look at it, it tells you that we are very, very likely when we get six months down the line and the first hot six hot first six months of 2022 fall off, we're going to be in that 2% range. So what the Fed does from there is the big question. We've talked about this on the show. They are deathly afraid of repeating the mistakes of 1980 and thinking, hey, we did our job. Inflation's totally under control and cutting. So they're going to want to hold rates high as long as they can for mortgage rates, for what you guys are concerned with uh, in terms of housing. The Fed does not dictate interest rates. For the last year, because inflation was high and rising, the Fed had to combat that by rising. So mortgage rates were also rising. So people will go, oh, well, the Fed hikes rates and mortgage rates go up. It's not the case. Mortgage rates go up when inflation is rising. 
Inflation is decreasing, normalizing, moderating. The Fed is not going to react to that for a while, but the Fed doesn't dictate mortgage rates. So mortgage rates are likely to moderate through the first half of the year. It'll be interesting when we get to the second half of the year, when the, the last six months of figures that we just showed for 2022 that were really modest, do we see those remain modest? Because the flip side could happen. Let's say we run these numbers forward six months and we get to June and we're at 1.9 for the last 12 months. And the Fed goes, everything's good. Let's cut. Let's cut. Let's cut. Let's cut. Well, it doesn't take much. You get three, four months of 0 0.3, 0 0.4 month over month readings and you're back up to a two and a half, three percent and it's trending the wrong way and the Fed looks really dumb. So the Fed's likely to hold rates high. If you have a home equity line of credit, you have a credit card. If you're going to be taking out an auto loan, things that are tied closely to Fed funds and the prime rate, those are likely to remain elevated. Mortgage rates are going to moderate. How much um, remains to be seen. You know, the projections for most experts uh, that we end the year somewhere in the five, five and a half percent range. There are a couple of crazy people out there that think we'll be under five, but five, five and a half is probably a reasonable figure. And then we have to look at this and say, what's going on in the economy, in the world, and what is likely to come next? Do we trend lower? Do we sort of hang out in that level? Because that will have a, a big impact on what happens with home prices. Yep. And here's a slide I was mentioning a moment ago at the moment, what, 96% uh, pretty much baked in uh, for the February 1st meeting of raising the Fed funds rate a quarter percent. So there's a small percentage out there that they'll, that, that believes you'll see a 50 uh, point basis hike at the moment. So the likelihood's not very high. Uh, next slide here. So you guys have probably seen this one floating around the internet a little bit. Uh, KB Homes reports a 68% cancellation rate in Q4 of 2022. That's huge, guys. Um, why? Housing affordability, uh, people getting scared about the economy. Some people just didn't qualify, right? Homes were built and, you know, they went under contract February last year, March, April, whatever of last year. The home was finally completed um, in that, that latter part of last year. And they just didn't qualify because rates were quite a bit higher and they had to cancel. So just an interesting take on uh, what's happening out there with regards to new construction. In fact, I talk about it a little bit more in a video I have coming out. Um, Josh, uh, what do we have here? Yeah, this chart is is interesting. And I, I pulled this actually in relation to the following chart, which is what I wanted to show, but this gives a little bit of context. So um, before the last downturn, we got to a little over 11 and a half trillion in total mortgages outstanding. Downturn took that down to through foreclosures, uh, other debt going away through various ways, um, down to about 10 trillion. And we're now uh, 13, a little over 13. So in simple terms, mortgage debt over the last 15 years has gone up 10%. A lot of people look at this and say, oh my God, the last time we were at these home prices, the last time there was that much mortgage debt, there was a wave of foreclosures. So I'm gonna wait for the wave of foreclosures and buy. The next chart gives it some better context. It's still not full context. So when you look at this, this is household mortgage debt as a percentage of GDP. So we talk about for owners, when you buy your home, every person, when they buy their first home, it puckers them a little bit and they go, oh my goodness, that payment is high. For us in California, at least, where you're likely to be paying more 
for your mortgage than you would in a rent. So it's an, a shock and it's an adjustment. But over time, when everyone else's rents go up year over year over year, and in 10 years, rents are 35% higher and your mortgage hasn't gone up and is now cheaper than rents, you're happy that you rented. So what this chart shows is that even though we have 10% more mortgage debt 15 years down the line, incomes have increased, the, the, the country's income in the terms of GDP has increased. So we're at a lower percentage at 50% versus 70%, still higher than uh, where we've been historically, but it, it didn't really get out of line through this timeline. So it's important to, to keep that into context. The other thing that this doesn't take into account is that interest rates are lower. The interest rate, the average weighted average interest rate on that outstanding mortgage debt is much lower than it was. So the debt service on that as a percentage of GDP, as a percentage of household incomes is lower. So that's not to say that we will have no foreclosures, that there won't be any stress if home prices drop a little bit, if the economy suffers and there's some job loss, we absolutely will. We're coming off of like historical record low levels. So they have nowhere to go but up, but they're going nowhere near what we saw in 2008. And you won't see the massive price destruction like we saw then, because that's what it takes is forced sellers, banks wanting to get uh, homes off their books at any point. The last one here that Jeb pulled up, this is again, just a reminder of the credit quality of loans since 2008. Um, versus prior to that. If we look here back in 2005, we had 800 billion worth of loans went on the books. And if you look at the, the bottom three bars, more than half of that was at a 719 or lower credit score, which 719 is average. That's a pretty wide tranche, the, the gray bar. But if you look at the bottom, the low ones, you know, 620 to 659, that was uh, what? 25% of the market. And right now we're sitting at last year, 600. It's, it's less than 10%. So there aren't a lot of homes in those weak hands who had lower credit scores to begin with. So most of these people are sitting in large equity positions with very good interest rates and in a solid economic position. So foreclosures will trend up because they have nowhere to go, but up. Um, and you'll see crazy numbers that they skyrocket. They're up a hundred percent. Well, when they go from nothing to a little bit more than nothing, it is a year over year comparison is very large, but it's nothing that's going to lead to a large scale downturn in prices where there's a big opportunity in foreclosures. Exactly. And if you're listening to this on the podcast and you're wondering what graphs we're actually talking about, well, you can one, come to the YouTube video and see it. Or if you look at the link in the description of this YouTube video or the podcast that you're listening at, there's a link to a community. Uh, that Josh and I have formed. It's a free community, basically, where we're sharing information, sharing information on articles we're reading. Josh is doing rate updates in there, um, live rate updates or recorded live updates for recorded update for recorded that day. live. I record yeah, them live. Record, he's recording them live and then putting them in here, letting you know what's happening with rates. So if you're wondering what's happening with rates, wondering articles that we're reading, whether we agree or disagree with them, putting a lot of that stuff in there. And the slides each week are also going in there. So check out that link again. Um, it's just a community to chat. We can have conversations in there off of YouTube and or the podcast. And if you're not aware of the podcast, check out The Educated Home Buyer. Um, this last week, we recorded an episode on what happens if you're falling short of your pre-approval. Like where, what should you focus on? If you're not getting pre-approved for the amount that you want, maybe you're not getting pre-approved at all, or maybe you're just starting the pre-approval and wondering, what you should focus on. Check out that episode. We dive into it in detail. Um, it's about 30 minutes or so of, of solid information on that topic. And um, a couple of weeks ago, we also did a forecast. So check those out and, and let us know what you think. So Josh, where do we go from here? 
we go home. Are we done? <laughs> We're done. We're done. We're done That's for it. the day. That's good. You you know, I warned you. I am I'm not feeling fantastic. I got a headache. I'm feeling a little under the weather, but we're gonna tough it out as long Josh as Josh has got COVID. He's not admitting it. He's got COVID. I had a negative test, so that's that's my story. I'm holding I'm holding to it. All right. Well, we're gonna get we're gonna keep Josh as long as we can, and at which point he's ready to leave, we're gonna kick him out. That's it. So if, the, if the screen just goes black, I didn't die. I just uh, went away. Well. Yeah, we'll, we'll see. We'll see what happens here. Uh, we're going to start with Reem Bean. Will the prices cut even more or this is it? So I believe you're going to continue to see uh, stress on prices for the next couple of weeks, months. Um, nothing, you know, the, the overall dynamic of the market hasn't changed, right? We're still kind of in this sideways movement, downward movement in some markets just because there's still... Uh, you know, housing affordability being a problem. Uh, and and that, that hasn't, you know, we're even though inflation's moving in the right direction, that hasn't solved that problem for a lot of people. Uh, and so, you know, you might find some stabilization in uh, the market once rates uh, get, you know, some of the stuff I've been reading is mid fives, low 5% range, you'll find a lot more stability in the market, at which point that could be the bottom of prices moving. I'm not sure what that number is, but no, the, the easy the easy answer is no. Price cuts are still happening out there, especially if you're looking at new construction. You know, there's five and a half months of supply that's going to be completed this year, supposedly, um, and a lot of it being done in the second half of 2023. Whether or not builders um, are in a tough position in the second half of 2023 is to be determined, but if they are, that's where you're going to likely see a lot of the price cuts happening in that in those markets. All right. Uh, David is, uh, is this a comment? This is just a comment. Uh, oh, this was the six and a half percent that you mentioned earlier there, Josh. Um, let's see. Big G, can you guys talk about this trend in demo democratic cities to build the so-called missing middle? How will this affect single family home prices? So, I'm not aware of of the missing middle, um, but what I can tell you is, without even knowing, that anybody pitching the idea of of building uh, homes for the missing middle is a political stunt, uh, more so than anything that's actually going to come to fruition. And I can say that with confidence without even knowing what we're talking about. But Josh, what are your thoughts? It's the same thing. If you look at the economics of it, what... what... <laughs> We have politicians of a certain bent that want to talk about we have to make affordable housing in these communities. And, and I get it. Um, an example for us. So Jeb and I are here in Huntington Beach. Huntington Beach is sort of the, the dirty oil town, coastal city here in Orange County. So it's nice. It's not cheap, but it's not Newport Beach. It's not Corona Del Mar. Um, not any of that super expensive stuff. And when the state of California is saying, hey, you guys have to build 10,000 affordable units, sit here and you go, well, there's a reason 13. why 13,000. So there's a reason why home prices are so high here because we're pretty much built out for the most part. There's not additional land. We're right by the ocean. We're affordable relative to other ocean abutting communities. So people want to live here. You can't it's sort of the equivalent of saying, well, we don't like saying that person's 500 pounds. Let's change the scale so that we say that they're 300 pounds. It's supply and demand. We've talked about before, a lot of the problems that we have right now 
are because politicians got cute and said, well, we can manipulate things. We can repeal the law of gravity. And they did that during COVID. We'll keep interest rates super low. And while talking about inequality and all of these terrible things, income inequality, inequality of assets, they're sitting here doing something that all of those who were on the higher end of the scale who had assets benefited greatly from because it pushed up the value of assets. So anytime someone's talking about this, I go, cool, how, how are you going to do that? Because if you put 13,000 affordable units in here, you're going to destroy the values. So maybe maybe that's the answer. We, so, we just lessen cities and lessen the values and then everyone can afford to live there, but no one will want to. Okay, so Big G goes on, and this is what's happening. So Big G goes on to say the missing middle is when they change the zoning law to allow a builder to buy a single-family home, knock it down, and build three townhomes. How will this affect the cost of single-family homes? Well, let me tell you. So here in Huntington Beach, Josh is just talking. They, The city, because of what just Josh was just talking about, the state has required us to come in and build X amount of units. And so now the city, we have until 2030 or so to, to make this happen. The city now has, doesn't really, their hands are tied. They have to do something. So what they've decided to do is take all of this vacant land that, well, some of it's vacant, some of it's not. Some of it has mobile homes on it. Some of them, just different things, right? And change the zoning laws on it to do exactly what you're talking about. But it's changing zoning laws from, um, you know, a mobile home park or whatever to now high density development. So it'd be condos and townhomes and, you know, these units stacked on top of one another. The city's fighting like hell. I mean, the people around these projects don't want it. Why? Because it's, you know, the, the projects here locally are being done in areas that have very expensive property. Um, just there's a multitude of reasons of why the people don't want it done. Um, but how do is that going to change anything? Maybe it adds a little bit more supply, uh, but some of this stuff is going to be rentals. It's not going to be properties to that are that are going actually going to be for sale in some cases. So I don't know. I, I I mean I I have mixed feelings about it. Yeah, people you know need property, but you also don't you know there, there's nothing that says you need to live uh, a mile from the beach either, right? So. There's places to build property where it's not on top of other projects. Um, is it less desirable in some cases? Sure it is. But again, it, it I, I believe in, in doing something more of that versus over developing areas to a point where the infrastructure can't support it. And that's the problem with most of these cities, especially coastal towns. There's the, the, the infrastructure is not there. You know, you got two lane roads you know, for, for this stuff. And, and now you're going to add 13,000 units in a, in a small space. So again, it's more of um, the higher ups in, in states and, and, and look at, look at California. It's a super majority, right? So you've got, again, going back to what Josh said, people in power trying to make housing affordable for everyone. Yeah. Great idea. But the reality is it's not a good idea um, to go into some of these communities and do this sort of thing because it creates other issues. But we could we could do a whole podcast on that or a whole episode. Maybe we will. Josh, maybe and it's one of those things. That. It's one of those things, Jeb, where once the genie is out of the bottle in terms of the government putting their their thumbs on the scale. And this isn't new. This isn't even starting in the 90s. Like I said, um, Ed Pinto has a thing going back where he can tell you starting in the late 60s, early 70s. Part of the reason why, and if you look back, everyone remembers, oh, those are the golden ages, right? My grandpa bought his house in 1968 for $32,000 here in Huntington Beach, and now it's worth $1.5 million. You go, yeah, 
but some of that was just inflation growth, normal, um, you know, evolution of the housing market that you would expect. There are people who've done the studies and run the numbers. And a chunk of that is from the government deciding that housing is good. People being homeowners leads to more stability in communities, um, you know, all sorts of good outcomes. So then they start going, well, let's incentivize that. Well, now you incentivize something, you get more of it. People see more benefit, more increases in value. So you can't go back. We can't go back 50 or 60 years and stop it. And for, for me, for Jeb, we've been in this business. We've benefited from the, the thumb being on that scale and promoting housing. But if you if we all had it, our, our, you know, if we could go back and say, how would we ideally like it? Go back and let market forces take effect and home prices would be lower and more affordable. But every time something happens, the government thinks that they can just step in and here we'll make a new policy and they don't think of unintended consequences. There you go. Mike dropped. Um, there's a couple of easy questions here to answer. So we're going to touch on those real quickly. Lynn says, is it true that if we buy a new construction home, we don't have to pay for property tax for the first couple of years? No, I'm not aware of that um, in any state. So as soon as you buy a property, you you have to start paying the property taxes on that property. Is it possible, Jeb, that that's an incentive that uh, the builders are doing? Offering Potentially, a, right? I mean, uh, they'll do it with HOA might be offering a credit or something towards uh, taxes for the first however many years. Um, but again, it, it would have to be built into to the closing somehow. Um, it, it should be reflected in a way that you would understand that you know, you're not avoiding it. It's just being, you're being incentivized, if you will, um, because the property taxes would still be due regardless. Uh, the Brownies Empire says, I'm asking the host of this live session if mortgage is better than renting. It depends, right? I mean, if you've tuned into the show before, you know, mortgages um, come along with buying a property. So the question is, the better question is, should you be buying now or should you continue renting? And that's going to depend on where you are in your life, right? I mean, we're telling, well, we've been telling, we've always been saying this, but stressing it more so now is that you need to have a longer term time horizon, money in the bank, be comfortable with the payment, so on and so forth. Is there a rush to go out and buy a house today? I don't think so. Um, but at the same time, rents aren't going down um, and housing isn't necessarily getting more affordable. Um, you know, if you look at where house prices were last year, right? So anybody that comes to me and says, okay, house prices are down 10% year over year. Well, first off, they're not, especially here locally, but say that once you factor in where rates were last year to where they are now, even if that house did drop by 10%, it's still less affordable on a payment scale than it is today. Uh, or than it was then, sorry, because of where interest rates go. And I know everybody's going to say, well, we want the lower price house. We don't care about the payment garbage. Everybody cares about the payment, right? If I, if I said you could buy a million dollar home and only pay a thousand dollars a month, you guys would be jumping, you know, for joy. You would take that day, you know, take that deal, um, eight ways to Sunday because it's, you're about the payment. You're not necessarily about the price and, um, it's just less affordable. And, and so, yeah, home prices are moving sideways to down, but homes aren't really getting that much more affordable. Um, and Josh, we actually talk about, we're, we're actually going to talk about that in the episode of the podcast this week is, is housing affordability. So stay tuned. Because you you hear that a lot. And what is it? What does it actually mean? What goes into it and what impact does it have on future home prices? And how did it impact what happened over the last several years? Yeah. I mean, so what so what goes into housing affordability, Josh? So we just touch on it. 
wages, rates, income, income rates, prices. It's just right. a measure of what percentage of households with the median income can afford the median priced home at today's interest rate. So if homes yep. go up, less people can afford it. If interest rates go up, less people can afford it. Vice versa. Interest rates come down, more people can afford it. Incomes go up, more people can afford it. So it's a good measure. It's a good measure to see over time because it takes into account all of the moving factors. And it explains why in 2020 and 2021, we still had tons of people buying. Home prices were going up fairly rapidly, but rates were very low. So affordability was better than it had been in 2019, despite the fact that home prices were going up. Eventually, you, you hit the end of the line with that in terms of prices will get to a point that despite low interest rates, the affordability is not there. And then on top of that, you have interest rates go up and go up rapidly and higher than we've seen in a long time, we hit an affordability wall. Like right now, the thing that I will tell people, um, I had one of my, my account executives from my lenders call today and he said, hey, how, how are things going with you? What kind of demand are you seeing? Said, my phone rings all of the time. We have less people that can qualify and affordability is just a measure of how many people can qualify. So we're having more conversations to get less eligible borrowers. It's not that there's a lack of demand, lots of demand. Everyone wants to own their own home. It's just, can they do it at a price uh, of a monthly payment that's reasonable for them? There you go. Good stuff. Um, what do we got here? Um, also asked the question, do you recommend financing a house in this economy? If you can afford the payment, if it makes sense to you, right? I mean, like Josh said, phone rings all the time. For some people, that payment makes sense. For others, it doesn't. Um, and it's 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 going to be like that in any market, right? So if you're looking at the economy thinking, I'm worried about job loss, like if you're personally worried about job loss, um, then maybe you have to be a little bit more timid in, in how you approach it. But if you've got a stable job, comfortable with the payment, the things that we talked about, it's it's less about the economy and more about, is it right for you? Um, Juan Carlos is in escrow. How soon um, should he refinance? How, how soon could he refinance, Josh, if mortgage rates dropped? Let's say, so Jeb just pulled up a chart, said May. The, the CPI figures for April should be really good, probably going to lead to lower interest rates. So you're in escrow. You close here January 30th. That's really only, what, 90 days, 110 days away. Nothing prevents you from refinancing. It has to make sense. So one of the things that we've talked about before is a simple rule of thumb. Don't ask why it works. It just does. This is when uh, it, it can be justified to do a rate and term refinance. You're not taking cash out. You're just trying to improve your payment is take $125,000 and divide it by your loan amount. And that will tell you how much you need to save in the interest rate to make it worthwhile. So if you have a $500,000 loan, that means you save a quarter percent of interest. If you have a $250,000 loan, you need to save a half percent of interest. So if we see that level of move in the next three, four months, you can absolutely do that. An important thing to remember, your lender, whether they're a broker, a direct lender, whoever, they will pay something called an early payoff penalty. It is a prepayment penalty, but it's not to you. It's to the lender. So by all means, if that opportunity arises, please talk to the lender that did your loan. Um, you know, give at least give them the opportunity to close that refinance for you to offset the cost of what is going to come with that early payoff penalty. Because I, I don't doubt that there are going to be people that that makes sense for. Um, the owner of United American Mortgage, I was having a conversation with him today, and he has a client that did a 2-1 buy-down in September. 
Their rate was 7.375. So they're at 5.375 right now. And they paid $19,000 to get that. So they've only used $1,500, $2,000 of the buy-down funds, maybe even less than that since September. So there's fifteen, dollars $17,000 sitting in that account. And today we have a lender that they're going to be able to use that money, move it over and get a 5.375 permanent buy-down. So it makes sense. And we're at what, four months, five months on that? Uh, there's no limitation on when you can do it. You're going to be limited in the first six months to using the purchase price versus the appraised value. Um, a lender will probably require you to still have an appraisal because in some areas, home prices have decreased. They're going to want to see that the value is still there. But you, you, there's no limitation on when you can do it. The numbers have to make sense. There has to be a benefit for you. And if so, you, you're definitely able to do it. But check with your lender that you did your original loan with and give them a chance to earn your business. There you go. And an easy one here, uh, Shen Shenkard Shen uh, says, how many times can you refinance your mortgage? As many times as you want, as long as it makes sense, like Josh said. So there's no limit on the number of times you can do it. All right, Josh, uh, let's see. Question that comes up often um, is, you know, not even talking about the rate. Well, in this case, for those listening, um, has a 30-year uh, or a 10-year arm at 5.75 or a 30-year fixed at 5.95, which is the better option? Is the arm worth it, Josh? 30%. I would I would say yes. It would be nice if it were a bigger benefit, but what is the reality? Are you going to have an opportunity in the next 10 years to refinance? Are you going to move in the next 10 years? Are you going to sell the property for whatever reason in the next 10 years? The answer to all of those is yes. So if it's a small loan size and it makes a $40 difference in the monthly payment, you may say, hey, $480 a year is a small price to pay to not ever have to worry about this rate going up. But definitely believe that you're going to have an opportunity in the next three, five, seven, 10 years to refinance to a better rate. Or if it's your first time home, realize that most people are not in their first home for more than 10 years. It's more like six, seven, eight years. So if there's some savings that's going to help you and give you comfort in terms of paying your bills now, building up some equity a little faster, I would be comfortable with it. But the most important thing is it has to feel right to you. If I'm your loan officer, don't listen to what I think you should do. Have me lay it out and you go with what feels right to you. You're the one that has to make the payment. You have to live with that decision. So a loan salesperson should never be making that decision for you or pushing you in a direction that you're not comfortable with. Good stuff. Uh, what, 30 so minutes on already? Would like to ask if you're finding any value at all. You appreciate Josh and I being here. I mean, the guy's got COVID and he's here. He's not admitting it. He's got COVID. He's here. Give him a thumbs up. If you don't admit um, you it, know, it, it doesn't and, happen. You know, something I'd like to ask is if you ever find any value in this stuff, if you show up each week and you're finding value, share this with somebody that you know that's looking to buy a house. Share the podcast with them, right? That's how we grow. Um, again, we're not really getting paid for for this per se. Um, so it it helps and it helps get the word out and helps us accomplish our goals. So we appreciate when you when you do that. It's always good for you know to hear somebody, hey, so and so referred us because they listened to you, so on and so forth. So Good, good. Um, Kim has a comment. Looks to be local here. Says, I've been watching this condo in Placentia. Asking price of four seventy five. Today saw it has been cut to nine or cut nine thousand dollars. So what two percent? So nice. Um, if you don't have a realtor, Kim, reach out. We can look at the comps and see what they say. Uh, but no, that's. I mean, we're seeing more things move. You know, price cut. Notice she didn't say 
you know, it got cut by $47,000. It got cut 2%. That's essentially what you're seeing in the market is these small cuts here and there. Um, and most people, most motivated sellers will continue to kind of, uh, you know, move as the market moves. Well, Jeb, here's, uh, yep. a, here's a marginally interesting story. Um, went out with a friend this weekend, friend of mine that you know, Jeb, and she's looking at homes. They're going to be selling their property, looking, and we looked at some turnkey stuff that have had a lot of activity, and we saw a really cool property that um, has been there on the market for 75 days, and it was priced maybe what it should have gone for, but it's empty, dirty, not staged dated, needs a bunch of work. So we're looking at it. She goes, I think this one might work for me if I could get it for around 700 there. And they were asking 750. Well, logically, this is what you guys see a lot of the time. You're saying, oh, this thing's been on the market for two months. They haven't had any offers. It doesn't present very well. Sure enough, she goes back into the MLS today and looks at it and it's in escrow. Is it going to close? We don't know. But don't think just because something's on the market, it looks like a diamond in the rough that it's going to be there forever or that you're going to be go, be able to go in and offer 700. Like she was literally asking, what are your thoughts? Do you think we can get this for 700? And like, don't know. The only way we're going to find out is talk to the seller. And we don't know if that's the right number or not. So you have to look and have your realtor run the comps for you and show you what are the other homes in there going for? What's the most recent model match? How does this compare to that? Have we been seeing flat prices in the area, decreasing prices in the area? Are they still trending up? So it was a little, little bit of a shock. I was actually, having seen the property, I was a little surprised. I thought it was one that might be a good one to be able to get a discount on. There you go. Um, the tale of two markets. Uh, so Juan goes on to say, thank you. By the way, I'm working with a broker. You recommended Jeb, so double thanks. No, awesome. Glad uh, glad it worked out. Um, and if you guys are listening and need that referral, just go to that link that's scrolling in the bottom there. It connects you with a broker in your area that can guide you in the right direction. So Josh uh, Wesley says, can you give an example of a place where the government didn't do anything for affordable housing and prices didn't increase dramatically? No. So let me give a little context to what I said. Um, I started doing this in 96. Um, and when you first start in a job, you're trying to figure out the job. You're not looking into the history of it and government policies and how that impacts it. But post 2006, 2007, I did. You, you start looking going, what happened? How did this whole thing fall apart? Like I said, uh, Ed Pinto over at the American Enterprise Institute has a long dissertation going back to the 60s of what the government has done. And for the most part, Wesley, um, shoot me an email. If you shoot me an email, I'll find it and send it over to you. He's done the research far better than I have. And I look back at it and I go, were those policies in the 70s and 80s as, as aggressive or as egregious as he said? But for the most part, all of the policies that we're talking about are federal policies. So I can't think of anywhere that we could say, well, here's an area where it wasn't done and here's an area where it was done. And what I can say is all of these things were done with the best of intentions. Everyone was a politician, a group of politicians going, hey, homeownership is a good thing. How do we make that possible for more people? And in the short run, you can have positive outcomes. In the long run, it generally leads to, to negative outcomes, even though you started off wanting something good for people. Like the whole genesis of subprime loans and Fannie and Freddie going lower and lower on credit scores and higher and higher on, on debt to income and higher and higher on loan to value was driven out of a desire to increase homeownership rates. Well, increasing homeownership rates, you saw the chart at the beginning of the show, led to making more loans to people who were not qualified and equipped to be successful homeowners. It is important for you to become a homeowner. It's more important for you to become a successful homeowner and remain a homeowner. 
And Josh, instead of him emailing you, he can go to the link in the description, join the community, and you can actually post Let's do that it. in the community. Let's do it. I like that. So that people can find it. So Josh is going to post that in the community. And when I get a minute here, um, I'm actually going to post uh, the link so that you guys, if you're interested, you can actually go there and join the community. Um, I'm working on it right now. So let's see here. We're going to, are you giving them that in. crazy link? Or no, I think, I don't think I so. Made. We're going to go with this one. We're so going to pin that. I'm going to pin here, that to the top. Replace pin find message. That, there you go. Pin that and let me, uh, easy question here. So, oh, well, I love the name it says, oh, well, can I apply for as many mortgages as I want within a two week period? Absolutely. And you actually, according to the CFPB, you have 45 days to pull as many mortgage credit reports as you want um, with no repercussions for your credit score. You don't need to talk to 10, 15, 20 lenders to figure out what's there. But if you want to talk to two, three, five, by all means, I like the two week window. Uh, that way, you, there's really no question that you're well within their 45 days, but keep it within 30 days, 14 days. Talk to as many lenders as you want to uh, and, and go through that pre-approval process. It's a cost to them. I don't know if you guys have seen the headlines. Um, credit reports more than doubled uh, just at the start of the new year. Uh, we give monopoly power or near, what, what is it, Jeb, when it's not a monopoly, but it's close to it. Well, we have three companies, TransUnion, Experian, and Equifax. We need all three of them. Uh, and they decided for us to get their data, it's going to cost about $100 a pop. So um, it's a cost to the lenders, uh, even if they're not charging you. So talk to a handful of lenders until you get a comfort level of what's available to you and that you, you know you're getting the right answers. Good, good. All right. Uh, let's see. Josh, I just had a one I was going to click on. Oh, big homie tour. Living in SoCal, are these first-time buyer and down payment assistance programs stackable? So um, let me start by saying, I think a lot a lot of people have a misconception of what <coughs> A first-time home buyer program is. A lot of people believe that, say, FHA is considered a first-time home buyer program. It's not really. It's it's open to anyone. Um, you don't have to be a first-time home buyer. You could have purchased multiple properties and still use it. Uh, but first-time home buyer programs, Josh, here in California, what are are there any? Um, and then down payment assistance. Is it one in the same? Down, the down payment assistance is really what it sounds like. They're giving you either down payment or closing cost assistance. So in California, back in 2011, Governor Jerry Brown, we had a budget crisis because in California, the majority of our taxes to the state are from property taxes. Well, what had happened in 2008, 2009, 2010, 2011? Property values had decreased. Many people were not paying their property taxes. So we had a budget crisis. So they solved this or partially solved this by defunding all city level redevelopment agencies. Prior to that, many cities had their own assistance programs and what would happen, they would get a certain amount of funding and it would be gone by March, April, May. But this time of year, you just know I need to be there. First guy in line, first girl in line, make sure I get my money. What they did, they took all the money from the city level redevelopment agencies back to the state. And for the most part, all we have is the California Housing and Finance Authority. Or finance agency. And with that, they have a second mortgage. They'll stack it with a third mortgage that allows you to get in with little to no money down. It covers your down, it covers your closing costs. The problem with that is there's income limits, but most people that are first time buyers will meet the income limits. You have the problem of they have a lower debt to income ratio than your standard FHA and conventional loans. They have a higher credit score requirement. 
and they have a higher interest rate. So they're harder to qualify. And then when you're done, you have a first mortgage, a second mortgage, and oftentimes a third mortgage against your property. And they will never allow you to keep those in place and refinance your first mortgage. So for you to refinance, you have to get to a point where your value has gone up enough that you can refinance all three of those loans. So I'm not saying it's a bad thing, but it's not ideal. It's suboptimal. Now, there are other programs, programs like Nehemiah, which is, uh, it's not a grant. There's different ways of structuring it. They're down payment assistance programs. Almost all of them have more restrictive underwriting and a higher interest rate, which as we're talking about rates are really high. It's hard to qualify. So cool, here's an assistance program. I'm going to help you and I'm going to charge you more than the guy who doesn't need the help. It's intuitive. It makes sense. It's the economics of how the lenders can can cover this. Um, but for us in California, we do not have a lot of good down payment assistance programs. But I know from friends, colleagues of mine, around here, I got a buddy in Massachusetts. Uh, Massachusetts has a great program. Half of their loans they do are mass housing loans. So where you are at, if you're outside of California, don't take this as me saying these suck, don't do it. You got to do your research and, and check in your area and see what's available. But in California, are they stackable? They don't even really exist, much less being stackable. And, and to Jeb's point, first-time buyer programs, there's not much that's limited to a, a first-time buyer. A lot of them won't allow you to own another home but um, an FHA, if you already have an FHA loan, they have a hundred mile rule if you want to get another FHA loan. But for the most part, obviously, we're talking about people wanting to buy their first home. There aren't a whole lot of programs that are truly limited just to first time buyers. There you go. Uh, Ricardo, uh, are you hearing any stories of homeowners getting significant sticker shock from recent increases on their property tax assessment? No. Um, and the primary reason is Josh and I are here in California. We don't have that uh, because of uh, Prop 13 and the way property taxes are calculated in the state of California. You don't have these uh, sticker shock, these uh, big increases in taxes. And a lot of states out there have some sort of homestead that that minimize uh, the increase um, in property taxes. Now, I don't know of any, uh, but I'm sure, you know, viewers out there can can, you know, chat, you know, drop a line in there and, and let you know what they're seeing. But, you know, I, I'm sure it's happening in some areas. Uh, I don't think it's as common as a lot of people wanted it to be uh, or thinking that it was going to be just because of, of some of those measures that are in place that protects it. Um, Josh, uh, Josh, Jay is asking, a, he's in Florida. Uh, could he refinance with you? Um, I know you have the ability to do loans in Florida. What are we doing? I do not. Our company is approved in 18 states, um, primarily the 18 most populous states, especially areas where, where Californians are going to. Um, it would be a different loan officer within our company, but I could certainly assist in structure um, while I'm in the process. I don't believe I'm going to add all 18 of those states, but obviously Florida, Texas, Tennessee, lots of Californians going there, lots of people in general going there. So we will be adding those. So if you ask in six months, I can probably uh, be your loan officer right now. We have another loan officer in the company that can absolutely help with that if you want to reach out. There you go. Uh, Jessica has been looking into multifamily units, mostly duplexes in Orange County. That's where we are here in Southern California. Confused on how folks are buying these duplexes, multifamily units or complexes and making the rent cover mortgage costs. They're putting big down payments, Jessica. That's the only way that it makes sense these days. Putting minimal down payments don't doesn't work anymore um, on the cash flow of these properties. There's no cap rate when you put 10% down, 15% down. Um, you know, so if you're out there trying to not, not saying this is you, Jessica, but this is what I hear a lot. 
People trying to house hack. I'm going to live in one and I'm going to rent the other three out. I'm going to buy it with three and a half percent down. No, you're not. Not here in Southern California, maybe in Alabama. Um, or And the reason I say Alabama is because I get property sent to me from Alabama and some of these units are very inexpensive. Um, so, but no, here in Southern California, it's very tough to make the numbers make sense just because of where the prices have gone. Um, yes, rents have increased, but it's still, it's difficult. It's difficult to be a uh, an investor looking at, at duplexes and multifamily units at the moment. There's, there's just not a lot out there um, that makes financial sense, unfortunately. Hey, Jeb, let me um, go off on a small tangent related yep. to this question. I get inquiries from people that watch your channel, that watch the show all the time, and they are on the right track. This is 100% intuitive. They go, can't afford a house, but I could afford a four-unit building because I got then three units of rents to cover this. And I've watched Jeb's video, and it says, FHA, I can do 3.5% down on a four-unit building. And that is absolutely correct. Unfortunately, FHA has something called their self-sufficiency rule. It's going to sound crazy, and it is a little bit crazy. But what they do is they take the rents from all three or four units. This only applies to three and four units. That's why Jessica is probably looking at duplexes because it doesn't apply to duplexes. But three and four units, FHA, they take all three or all four units, despite the fact that you're going to live in one. They add up all the rents. They give you 75% of that to allow for maintenance, vacancy, expense factor. And the 75% of the total rents has to exceed the mortgage payment. With rates high and prices high, I have not seen anything in Southern California pass in years, like probably before 2018, before COVID, before the most recent spike. So it is very unlikely that in, in a high, high cost area, you will be able to buy three to four units. Now I say that I've got a buddy in Minnesota. This is probably 30, 40% of his business, helping young people, 28, 32, 34, buy their first property FHA units and living in it for one, two years stacking some cash and then they go buy their house and they have a rental property. It is an awesome, awesome strategy. But if you're in a place where home prices are really high relative to the rents, it's going to be almost impossible to do that. And that's why a lot of people look at duplexes, but the, you're seeing Jessica, even with a duplex, now you only have one other unit of rent to offset your mortgage payment. And it's still very difficult to qualify, especially if you're doing FHA with three and a half percent down. All right. Good. Good. Um, I'm going to touch on this one just real quick because it, it's kind of an easy one and it kind of relates to what we were talking about a moment ago. Salitha says, for those who don't know, there's a housing program in California for its lower interest rate, no down payment, no closing costs, just have to save, save, save. It's called NACA. I did a video on NACA a couple of years ago, not really knowing a lot about NACA, but doing my research and you know reading and what have you. And, and I gave my two cents on NACA. The gold of that video, if you go search it, is the comments. Read the comments on people that have been through the program or or flip side have tried to go through the program and you know what they think about it. In theory, seems like a great deal, right? Buy a house, no money down, super low interest rate, you know, hell, so just give me a house. Not that easy. Um, so if you're looking into that program, just make sure you, you do your research. Don't watch my video, watch some others as well, but also read the comments because that's where people are really giving you the gold. So Jeb, what I will say and sort of the cosign your read the comments, I know nothing. I've done no research, but I've talked to five or six people who've ever looked into the program, applied for the program, tried to go through it. And 
80% of them will curse its name forever having heard it. So secondhand, but that is people that have gone through the process. And I know in your comment section that you say there's people there that swear by it. It's the greatest thing that ever happened. Um, and, but, and there are very small percentage of, of those people, just FYI. And some people come out and said, listen, I got it, but it's the process sucked. Like it took me three years, blah, blah, blah. Like just go read it. Like I haven't read them in years, but you know, I get comments on it still today. Uh, let's see. Josh, there was a good one here. Um, any, know anything about this? Uh, CG says, I was told by many lenders that I cannot take a home equity line of credit because I took forbearance in 2020. Now sitting on six figures of equity that I can't use. Is that true? So here's the thing. Home equity lines of credit don't fall under Fannie, Freddie, FHA, VA guidelines. These are all private lending institutions. So it's a bank. It's a credit union. They make their own guidelines. So if they say it's true, it's true. The best thing you can do, since you know what the roadblock is, is get a list of every credit union in your county and start making phone calls and know the details. When did you go into forbearance? When did you get out? How did you get out? Um, did you pay it back? Did they add it onto your loan? Is there a balance outstanding? Do you refinance and roll it all in? Since forbearance wasn't reported, what I'm thinking is yours was just tacked on as a balance at the end and your current mortgage statement is the tip off to them because a lot of them, a lot of folks were able to do forbearance for six, eight, 10 months and then come to us after making three on-time payments and refinance. Since under CARES Act, it couldn't be reported. Once our loan goes in place and that old loan is paid off, there's there's nothing, there's no documentation, there's no evidence that you were ever in forbearance. There you go. Good stuff. Um, know anything about Wells Fargo, Josh? Does it affect your job? No, we um we had a couple of lenders who offered programs, third-party originators, wholesale companies who offered Wells Fargo programs. Um they had some jumbo programs that had amazing interest rates and just horrific underwriting. Like just, you'd be jumping through hoops for weeks. By the time you were done, your borrower wanted to kill you. So for the most part, no, I think it's overblown. Um, you want to talk about, we, we talk a lot about politicians grandstanding and saying nice things. If you've read their announcement, um, they point out we're the largest bank lender uh, to first time buyers, to minorities, to this, that, and the other. Well, when you have a giant footprint and you are everywhere, you will make a lot of loans to all of those people. But in any community, they are a small percentage of that. They have overlays. They have not great interest rates. They have not great fees. And you're dealing with a glorified bank teller for the most part. We've said that. You know, Jeb, you know good loan officers that work at Wells. I know good loan officers at Chase. Um, but they are the exception. The majority of, of the people they have working there are bank employees. They're not you know, self-employed go-getter loan officers that are, that are working in your best interest. All right. Uh, Chris wants to know about pros and cons of USDA. So Chris, what I'm going to do, we're going to talk a little bit about it, but go watch the video. I've recorded it. It gives you all the information you need to know about USDA, pros, cons, loan requirements, all that good stuff. But the main pros are you can buy at 100% financing. Uh, if the property appraises for more than your purchase price, you can actually use that difference and apply it towards your closing costs, which is a nice benefit. Uh, the, the downside of, of, of USDA, um, is that it, there's income restrictions. Uh, there's also, uh, you know, area restrictions with regards to population and it has to be considered deemed a rural area. Um, what am I missing, Josh? Any, any, 
I mean, did you say there's income obviously limits? more, but you, income you have limits, income yes. limits. Yeah. People ask, well, is there, a, is there a loan limit? There's not a loan limit because the income limit takes care of that. If you meet the income limit, there's a, a limit to what you can qualify for depending on current interest rates. And, and depending on where you live in Florida, may or may not be considered uh, USDA eligible. Um, I mean, the majority of the U.S., is USDA eligible? Uh, but I think it's a population under, I don't know, like I forget the number. It's something just, super low. It's, you know, you just, don't just think... go watch the video. I, I've done it. I've done the research. It's all there. Um, it'll give you everything you need to know. So Jeb, I have a, I have a newsflash here. Ooh, my mother-in-law, my mother-in-law tested positive for COVID today. My father-in-law had previously tested positive for COVID, but that doesn't mean anything about me potentially having COVID. When did you see them last? Because I have not seen them for six weeks, so huh. I'm safe. It's been long. It's been shorter than six weeks. Well, uh, well you're right. It's been like well, three I have weeks. an announcement. It's been like three weeks. Sidetrack here, guys. Announcement. So a couple weeks ago, I crapped all over the glass the glass onion was that the was it's called yeah i think so the glass onion but here's the thing i i was not a fan of the show uh but here's the thing i saw josh on on saturday he put me on to the white lotus so how many episodes in are you how many episodes in are I, you? i'm done with the first season i watched the white lotus over the last couple of days if you have not seen that I'm not even sure the whole dynamic of this thing, but it's entertaining as hell. Like it is, it's pretty funny. Uh, it's will, funny. It's a little bit of drama. You You're not really sure very the hard, going, but it's interesting nonetheless. So that humans are awful. Those are the uh, two it's, things. It's hilarious. Away. It's actually hilarious. I mean, the show is hilarious, and I think it's hilarious. <laughs> Maybe my uh, my take is weird. So if you've seen it, what are your thoughts on the White Lotus? I'd love to know. Um, okay, we're getting back on track. Sorry, guys. Uh, Lazaro says, how do you see the Miami market planning on selling my house after Christmas of next year? Thanks guys. Happy new year. Happy new year to you as well. Um, don't have a lot of take on Miami market. Um, uh, here's what I'll say is the headlines are confusing as hell when it comes to Miami. I see one headline that says the market's down considerably. I see another headline that says markets up considerably. I don't know. Um, I tell people not to read the headlines and I'm doing it myself, but find an agent in the area that's that is knowledgeable that understands the area and have a conversation. Um, I think, you know, Miami is like a melting pot to some extent, right? So it is, it is people moving uh, south to get warm. It is uh, a big, you know, there's a big, I wouldn't say immigration population. There's a big population coming in from country uh, from all over the place, just because of the weather and, and location to, to South America and um, just islands and all of this different stuff. So it's always a desirable area. People want to live there. Um, but at the same time, it's, you know, it's expensive. Um, and you know, if, unless you're willing to consider high rise condos and, and the high density type of lifestyle, then it, it's, it's tough to, you know, to get into that market. So I I can't tell you where prices are going because I don't know it well enough. Um, but it's a lot different than, than 08, um, 07 that, that, you know, back then, the the condo development community was kind of that's when they really started building that place out um and you know there were cranes and high rises going up everywhere this time you don't have so much so i think yeah while there's some more supply but it's still not to the extent of of anything you saw years ago so i think it's kind of stable but i can't say for sure 
Rodrigo. Jeb, a big South South Beach guy. I don't even know what he's talking about. I've never been. Hey, listen, I love warm weather. I, I, give me 80 degrees and sunny. I'm happy. Um, what's up, guys? I have a 760 credit score, 3.5% down on a $500,000 value. Make $9,000 a month, but my taxes are weak. Last year showed 70K. Prior year, 12000 What do I need to, to qualify for a $450,000 home under $3,000 payment in SoCal? So under there's a lot going on there. Um, more importantly, Josh, I think the, the right question is, made 12K one year, 70K the next year. How is that income going to be looked at when going FHA for one? Um, and what's what's the best plan of attack? So FHA requires two-year tax return. So with that, we're at a situation where we're going to have to average that. So 70 plus 12, 82 across 24 months is not nearly enough to qualify. Another problem here, even at 450, um, with an FHA, once you factor in mortgage insurance, property taxes, everything, you're going to be over 3,000, not a ton, over 3,000. But let's say it ends up at 3,300. Well, so you know, here's the thing, Rodrigo. I just did a video on FHA where I talk about buying a house with a $75,000 salary. So if you average, say, 70000 again this next year that you file your taxes, you're going to be sitting somewhere around that $75,000 number. And I do it based off FHA. And, and it shows you exactly how much you would your payment would be here. And basically SoCal, because, I mean, it, it's showing you those numbers. So check it out. So Jeb, a couple a couple of questions here. None of these are right answers. Whenever we hit a situation like this where you're hitting roadblocks, we start brainstorming. What are potential options? A 3% down conventional is an option with a 760 credit score. Jeb, that relates to the one you were recording today, mortgage insurance at various credit scores. When you get a really nice credit score like that, um, a conventional loan can absolutely make sense. You also, with a conventional loan, have the possibility. It's not guaranteed, but you have the possibility of getting a one-year tax return findings. Um, the next question I would ask when you say $70,000 um, week taxes are weak last year. So was that your 21 tax return and you haven't filed the 22 yet? We haven't filed the 22 yet. Now we've got 70,000 for uh, for 21. We can get that 22 filed here, you know, in another week or two. So those are the things that, that I would look at. Um, but you're probably looking at a payment a little bit higher than, than what you're thinking there. In Southern California, 450 is going to be real difficult and most likely to have an HOA with it that pushes that payment a little higher as well. Understood. There's something I want to touch on, Josh, is that a lot of people believe that high prices or prices in general not going down is inflation remaining high. With that said, are prices and inflation the same thing? No. They're not. Why aren't they? What, inflation, what is, yeah. inflation is the rate of change of prices. Correct. So the rate of change for an extended period of time, um, and really, if you look at it, how they measure month over month, what did we have? 12, 14 months of really high month over month inflation, really high annualized rate. Um, so it's funny, the Fed gets bashed for saying it was transitory. Well, in the arc of history is 12 to 14 months and then moderating and normalizing transitory. Yeah, it is. And I'm not saying that's where we're at. We went through the charts and we do believe that's where we're at today, but we need a year or two or three staying at those levels before we say it was truly transitory. But I, I, when they were saying it, they were mentioning like, oh, two, three months of these high reads and we'll go back to normal, which clearly wasn't the case. But transitory is a correct label when you look at it when uh, 
if we remain, if we get by mid-year to a more normalized level and we remain there going forward, they were correct. I'm not saying they are, um, but you can't judge a, a call like that in the short run. But it was a little bit of a digression from your question about inflation no, versus I mean, prices. No, but it's good. I mean, I actually just read an article from uh, Ron Insana, who basically you said that exactly like inflation. He believes inflation is transitory uh, for exactly the reason that you just said. So but nevertheless, um, I digress. I just when people say inflation isn't coming down, it's, you know, eggs are still seven dollars. Guess what? Eggs are seven dollars. Like but the fact that eggs aren't going to seven fifty means that inflation isn't climbing. But Jeb, a couple a couple yeah. things. Think of think of the insanity of that. Did they say, "Oh my God, we're having deflation. Gas is a dollar fifty cheaper a gallon now." No one says that. You don't cherry pick the one thing. For us in California, eggs are incredibly expensive because of bird flu. It doesn't have anything to do with COVID and government and Fed stimulus. It's an isolated incident. Now, any number of things are a hundred percent related to that, and were under the control of the government, but. People that come out and say, well, what about this? What about that? Don't take one-off things. Name me like five, 10 things and definitely understand the difference between prices remaining elevated and inflation moderating, which inflation is absolutely moderated and prices are absolutely inflated. I don't like it. We talked last week about the price of my lunch. I bitch about inflation every day, every day, probably twice a day. Wives get tired of hearing it. Get tired. Uh, Kim has a follow-up question on the down payment assistance. Josh says, do you, as a potential buyer, apply for that down payment assistance on your own, 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 on your own, or does your lender do it on your behalf? Almost all of them are done in conjunction with the loan. I, I do know, you know, I said that, that none of the cities in California have assistance programs anymore, but there are a handful that do. They fund it themselves. And as a result, they run out of money really fast and they have long waiting lists. So I don't want you to, if you find one, don't say, hey, Josh is nuts. Here's here's a city that has you a down payment assistance program. Nuts, you but... can, you can. Just would be mean. But uh, it's they're out there. I, I hear someone will call every six months and say, well, I just checked into this program. I said, cool, do they have money? No. I said, but they have a waiting list. Well, cool. How many people are on the waiting list? There's 49 people on the waiting list. And I said, how many did they fund last year? Two. So I said, so you're number 50 in the line that they can get. So in 25 years, you can get some assistance <laughs> to buy a home in that city. Every year, a couple people get really lucky and they're stoked. Everyone else is unhappy. There you go. Um, a lot of down payment assistance. Josh, I think that means we need to do an episode on the, the podcast of down payment assistance, man. A lot of questions around that. Um, so hold on, Jeb. This is this is uh, more. We'll, we'll get back to the movies and we'll talk. You can tell when someone's not from California. So Rick says 450000 in SoCal is the property in Compton. Well, my friend, Kim corrected you real fast. Not only not in Compton, not close in Compton. Yeah. Uh, a nice house in Compton, 750, 850, and there's million dollar homes yeah. in Compton. You, you've, you know, it's not 1989. Easy, he's been gone for a while, and Compton has really high home prices and lots of young professionals moving there and gentrifying. You know, we'll keep it. We'll keep the theme, Jeb, in the in the 80s. You remember the scene in Boys in the Hood where he walks through and he talks about all the gentrification. Well, the difference is the gentrification now is people of color that went off to college, that have good degrees. Their 
professionals and they're gentrifying this area where people that lived there 20, 25 years ago cannot live there because young professionals are are settling in these areas, improving houses. You know, even on um, Tarek's show, the the one where he's going to teach people to flip, they flipped one over in Compton. And this was a couple of years ago and it ended up selling for like six fifty. Well, here's the So I just got a referral from uh, another agent of a property in Inglewood. Guys, Inglewood, Compton. Nuts. Nuts. So got a prop. So I've got a potential listing coming up here. I'll get to see the property in the next couple of days. It's in Inglewood. Quick look at the property. Three bedroom, two bath. I don't know, 1,200, 1,300 square feet. It's like $850,000. Like easily. Like not even, like I haven't seen it yet. And I'm telling you that's what the price is. So just shows you. Yeah. I mean, you're not even close with some of these prices at the moment just because of where things have gone. And and there's Inglewood's a different area because of, uh, you know, uh, the Clippers and, and, you know, the Rams and the Chargers and all of that um, added on top of the, the gentrifying already with stadiums and all that good stuff. But nevertheless, uh, Josh, any thoughts on a recession turning into a depression? Who was it, Jeb, that someone came out um, and said we were going to have an inflationary depression? And it was a smart person. It's not someone like, I had this idiot, smart guy. I, um, I'll, I'll Google it here while we're talking. I don't see it happening. Um, is it possible? Yeah, but un- unlikely. It's probably above my pay grade to, uh, to comment on that. How about you, Jeb? Well, I mean, my thoughts, listen, I believe in history repeating itself. I, I truly um, now is, is it, you know, is the hundred year repeating a, a thing? I don't know, but I can tell you with government spending and just, you know, where we're headed, is it possible that you could have it, a depression today looks different than a depression, you know, a hundred years ago, but 1929 is what? five years, six years out from now? Is it possible that with the direction we're going, you could see something like that? Sure. I mean, I I don't know the likelihood at this point, just because obviously there's a lot of time between now and then. And um, I don't think we stay in a recession for for that period of time. But I will say that uh, history has a way of of repeating itself. And at the moment, we're an economy that, uh, you know, we, we like to spend money. We like to spend, and I don't see a way to correct that um, without wiping the slate clean. And I don't think we can um, do that at the moment. So anyway, I digress. Jeff, as, uh, as long as we're on the, the subject of, of plugging different videos you did, Jeff has a question. Did that Bank of America housing assistance program ever go into effect? Was it, it 17500 what, What's that all about? Um, I don't remember the amount. Was it 17,500? I do know the Bank of America has the program. Um, the qualifications to get the program, um, I don't remember them quite frankly. Um, but here's the thing is that they had a goal of funding so many of them, um, based on, you know, a certain time period. And, and again, forgive me because the video's been so long and nobody's talked about it since then. But, you know, what I believe and what other people that have, that commented on this believe, uh, is that it was more of a publicity stunt than it was anything of actually a measure of, of helping people get into homes. Um, so with that said, you know, the qualifications were, weren't, you know, um, you know, most of the people that need down payment assistance aren't necessarily in the best. And this is I'm I'm summarizing, not necessarily in the best financial position, because 
if they're going for down payment assistance, that typically means they don't have a lot of money in the bank. Um, and you know, the, the, the requirements to get this loan, the restrictions were crazy of what you needed to do in order to qualify, um, with regards to income requirements. And, and there was an, a median income requirement. It just, it didn't make sense financially. So to, the easy answer to the question is, is the program there? Yes. Are they doing any loans? I have no idea. With that said, all right. Uh, to Josh, um, this is more of a comment than a, yep. a question, but big homie tour again. Uh, there's a 455,000 three in one local to me price cut about 90 K this month. Definitely not in line with home prices around it. You're saying after the 90 K price cut, it's still too high or is, did the 90 K get it in line? You know, this is something we talk a lot. A price cut doesn't tell you anything. Uh, a price cut was something that came on the market that looked like it was priced appropriately and should sell within a month or two that gets a 90,000 price cut. That would get our attention. The, the genius that saw his neighbor with the beautiful turnkey home uh, that ends up, Jeb, I turned the damn light on again. The uh, that has a, a price cut because they came on the market thinking they would get the same price that a, a beautifully upgraded home did. Well, that, that's really to be expected. So if you're uh, if you're still around, um, throw throw in the comments there what you were seeing with that because it is it's an interesting market. And if you're in the market, you really need to be paying attention and looking at these things. Hopefully, you have sort of defined your area of where you'd want to live. You have a pretty narrow range of prices, bed and bath count, school districts, that type of stuff. And if you watch it over time, over two, three, four months, you'll get a feel for what's real and what's legit and what prices were crazy and, and needed a, a big cut to get in line. Good, good. Uh, Rick has a question here, says uh, down payment assistance from a family member for conventional loans is capped at 5%. What are the tax implications, if any, for the person gifting the money? So is gifting money considered down payment assistance? Um, just, I'm going to throw this question your way, Josh, cause I'll, I'll you'll answer yep. better than, than the way I'm trying to, to get it to you. <laughs> You're trying to confuse me. No, it's not down payment assistance. It's a gift and there is no limitation on gift. So, um, whoever told you it was capped at 5% has no idea what they're talking about. Uh, I told you guys earlier, I started doing this in the nineties, back in the nineties, you could get a gift, but you had to have a chunk of money that was your own, usually 5% of your own funds. And then you could get to 10 or 15 or 20 with gift funds. Now, Fannie Freddie fall in line with, with FHA where you can get gift funds. There is no limitation on that. You don't have to have any of your own funds. We do conventional loans all of the time with people who um, have the money coming from a family member, whether it's a little down payment, or a big one. So um, that's misinformation. I would talk to someone else possibly about your loan. And then what are the tax implications, if any, for the person gifting the money? This is one of the biggest misconceptions out there. There are zero tax implications for the gift or, or the giftee. If you receive the money, you certainly don't get taxed on it. The person gifting the money doesn't get taxed on it. It's their money. They've already been taxed on it. There is an impact on your lifetime estate tax exemption. So you've all have heard this. Um, Jeb, do you know what the limit is now? It's a lot. Like what can a, what can a gift donor give in a year to be ignored for tax purposes? Is it 15,000, 17,000? That's a lot. I think it's more than that. Um, okay. I, don't, I don't know. I'll look it up here. So there's an annual limit that you can give to one person with no estate tax implications. And let's just throw it until he looks at it. Let's say it's, it's $15,000. So if someone gives it's you- It's actually uh, 16. Okay, 16. So if someone gives you $116,000, you obviously win $100,000 over that. Well, $16,000 has no impact on their lifetime estate tax exemption. 12 million uh, is the lifetime exemption. 
That was the fun part. So the 100,000 comes off of that 12 million. So now they only have an $11,900,000 lifetime estate tax exemption. So even if they gave you a million dollars to buy a home, they still have $11 million of lifetime estate tax exemption. And if they gave you a million dollars, they may have the type of wealth where they're pushing that. But for most people, there is absolutely no impact whatsoever. And at the time of the gift and that tax year and for the foreseeable future until they die, zero implications. There you go. Good stuff. Um, let's see here. Josh, Big G has another question. Uh, Snowbird in Palm Springs. Don't see any new construction and many houses are over 1 million. Any new construction I see, the homes are all over 1 million. Why aren't they building more? So Josh, why do builders build more expensive properties versus less expensive properties typically? profit maximization. You go to the car dealership, you know, they will have one or two of the lost leader cars that are, what are those now, like $20,000 sitting there at the, the front of the lot. But for the most part, you're not able to, to get those because that's not what people want. And that's not what the, the dealers benefit from. Same thing with builders. They benefit by having a nice margin. And if they're able to, they're going to build as expensive a homes and as upgraded of homes as they can sell. And the reason being, you know, Jeb, we've gone through the numbers and you probably have a better handle on this than I do. Land is expensive. Getting the land entitled is really expensive. Mm-hmm. Permitting is really expensive. The number is almost $100,000 if someone gifted you the land before you California. break ground yes. Yeah, in, in California. And it's not much better nationwide. It's, it's very high everywhere. So We've shown the chart that there's no $300,000 homes being built anymore. Why? Because you build a $300,000 home with the cost of materials, labor, permitting, you're losing money. So the way they profit is by pushing those prices as high as possible. There would be a lot of demand for $400,000 homes. There just wouldn't be any profit or at least not much. Good. No, agreed. I mean, it's it's the cost to build and, and you know, these builders are trying to max max profit. Um, you know, it's because land isn't readily available in, in Southern California, right? It's not Eastern North Carolina where there's land everywhere and you can, you know, build developments and what have you here. There's very little land. It's very expensive to build, um, because of the cost with the state and all of the entitlements and stuff that Josh mentioned. So trying to max that profit out and people are buying them, right? And, and so as long as people are buying them, they're going to continue to build them. Michael says, where do you expect rates will go tomorrow? I'm deciding my lender tomorrow and locking rates. 2-1 buy down, fingers crossed. So Josh, where are rates going tomorrow? Anyone's guess. On a day-to-day basis, literally anything can happen. I'm going to quickly share one chart um, just to show you what that looks like. So let's present screen. Here we go. Okay, so this shows you this little red line here. That's a, a Fibonacci reach. You got to put it on the on the screen, buddy. Why isn't it there? Oh, it is now. It into, thank you, sir. Thank you for the help. Okay, so what you're you're looking at there, the little red line there. You see how we keep bumping up into it? We touched it here. We hit it here and got pushed back. We got hit here, got pushed back. We ran through it this morning, got pushed back. That's an important level of resistance, and it can take a week, a month to break through that. We're going to break through it, and we're going to break through this 200-day moving average eventually, but this red line is going to be hard to get through. That blue line is going to be really hard to get through. 
Once we do, then we're likely to run. But I don't know what's going to push us through here. You see, again, we go back to that line. This is back December 1, December 2. Then we tried again, December 13, 14, 15, 16, and then took a little pause, made another run at it here. So I don't think there's a great probability of rates getting better. I'm not worried about them getting worse. If you wanted to give it a longer timeline, um, just because you pick a lender doesn't mean you need to lock. What I tell people is... Um, you get into contract, there's only three things that can happen with interest rates and two of them are good. You know, they can go higher. That sucks. No one likes it. They can stay the same, which we'll talk about in a second of why that's good, or they can go down. You're happy if they go down. Why are you happy if they stay the same? Because if you're in a 30 day escrow, a 30 day lock is more expensive than a 15 day lock. So if you can wait and get inside the 15 days, you're going to get a little improvement on your pricing. $400,000 loan, a quarter point improvement is $1,000. It's real money. So I look at that. I'm not super hopeful in the very near term that rates are going to push through that, but somewhere in the next two to 12 weeks, we're going to break through to better interest rates. And if you see, you may be asking, well, that's going higher. Why is that good? That chart is bond prices. Rates move inversely to that. So we want to see bond prices go up so that rates go down. Um, but I wouldn't be worried and obsessing about locking a rate tomorrow. I'm fine with the 2-1 buy down because I think you're going to be refinancing out of that in six or eight months. And at least with the temporary buy down, the funds for the buy down go into uh, an escrow account and you will have access to them uh, to either pay your loan down or to buy the interest rate down when you do refinance later in the year. All right. Kim has another question. Kim's our, our most commented commenter tonight. Commented commenter. That doesn't make any sense. Um, if you paid off a collection about three months ago and called uh, the bureaus saying that they have reported to or called the agency saying they have reported to the credit bureaus as paid off and it's still reporting, what should you do? Josh, um, I mean, here's the thing. If if they're if they're saying they paid it off, see if you can get a letter, see if you can get something that shows that it has been paid off. Um, and then you can provide that documentation to the bureaus yourself to to work on trying to have that removed. Um that's really about all you can do. Um, you know, there are companies out there that'll do this for you. I mean, at this point, it doesn't sound like you need them. You just need the bureaus to report correctly. Josh, do you have any advice? There's a question and there's a question behind the question. So the easy button is send me a letter stating that this account has been paid in full. With that letter, your lender can go to the bureaus and do a rapid rescore. So the letter has to have your name, the account number, and contact information so that they can successfully do the rapid rescore. So that's if you need it done very quickly. You don't have a house yet from what it sounds like, so I wouldn't necessarily do that. But let's say you got an offer accepted tonight, you're in escrow tomorrow, you have 30 days. That's how I would go about it. But the second thing there is be very careful. If you have a three-year-old collection and there's been no activity on it for three years, the, the algorithm is looking at that and going, hey, Kim had a problem three years ago. As soon as you pay it off, even though it's now a paid collection, it's going to report as new activity. The date of last activity will be today. So most times it's, it's not negative. It's neutral. Um, I just generally in the short run, you don't see a big improvement from paid collections. Since you've already paid it, it's a little bit too late, but I would always try to negotiate for deletion. Most collection agencies won't do that, but it's always worth asking. All right. Good stuff. Um, if you're in need of a lender, in need of a mortgage professional, uh, or that's the same thing. If you need a lender or a mortgage professional or a real estate agent, there's a link scroll in the bottom. Do me a favor. Click on it. Um, 
and, and go there, right? I, it, a lot of you guys have reached out, had success um, in talking to somebody that I'm able to refer you, that Josh is able to refer you. Um, so if you're going through that pre-approval process, you just want another quote, um, you know, it's a good place to start. The same with a real estate agent. If you need somebody to help you buy, sell, invest in real estate, that link will get you there as well. And then last thing I'm going to ask here is that you like and subscribe at the moment. Um, there's 74 of you. You guys are slacking. There's 250 something people watching and nobody likes us. Josh, no one likes us, man. Zero, zero likes. We got zero likes. Dude, it sucks. No one likes us. I'm um, used to it. Uh, let's see. You know, I, I don't have, I don't know. Really there's have. a, there's a good question here, but right, Hey, I, I want to follow up. Kim has a follow up here. We'll just have a conversation with Kim. She has the letter, but it's still showing up. She has the, I have the letter of deletion. The collection agencies are flaky. I've seen this go six, eight, 10 months before they report it. So you have the letter, you're good. You have that in your pocket. Don't worry about it. Hopefully it shows up before you find a property and get into escrow. If not, with that letter, your lender can do a rapid rescore and get rid of it. It's not something you need to worry about. Worry about finding a house because that's a full-time job of find something you're happy with at a price that works for you. The rest will take care of itself. All right. Michael has a question for Jeb. It says, one of my 2-1 buy-down requires that the buy-down be paid completely by the seller. I'm getting 10000 from them, but I will be short $426. How difficult would it be for my agent, I'm assuming, oh, to convince the seller to accept a check from me for the difference and give me that as a credit? Dude, just ask your real estate agent or your lender for 426 bucks. <laughs> and see if somebody will help you out. Um, yeah, I, I would say, you know, giving the seller a check and all of that, would somebody yeah, do it? How, how about this? If the, if Michael's your client, could you not say, we'll pay for $500 of your escrow fee if you give us a $500 credit? He can pay it in another way. He cannot pay that exact fee is why he needs the credit. And the reason why, Michael, it's a limitation of servicers accounts and the way they handle it and transferring the loan off to the lender. Um, it's it's not uncommon that you hear these these limitations, but there's ways where you could cover something for the, the seller for X number of dollars and then they increase that credit. Um, but like Jeb said, you can get it from the agent. You can get it in a number of ways. There's there's ways to make it happen. Yeah, I mean, if you were my client, I would just give you 426 bucks through the close of escrow to make it go away. And then you're happy. Everybody's happy. We move on. Right. And um, most likely if you, if you explain this problem to your realtor, that's what they're going to say. Yeah. And they may not, right. Some people are, are like that. I'm about making deals happen. I'm about um, trying to get to the finish line and, and make sure everybody's, you know, on the same page and, and happy with the result. Not all people are like that. So if it doesn't work, there's other ways to do it. Like Josh said, uh, but I'm it, there's a solution. You just got to find it. Um, hacker. I may be moving within the next year or so. If my realtor okay. has agreed to sell at a 4% commission, in addition to the 4% commission, how much more should I estimate will be deducted? Depends. Uh, depends on the area that you're in. Um, you know, here in the state of California, I would say that you could, you probably estimate uh, at least another percent. Uh, between title and escrow fees that you're going to have to pay. Um, but in addition to that, you got to think of things like, is there any, you know, is there any 
uh, term like termite fees, home warranties, NHD reports, any, anything else that's that's not being factored in that may come up as a result of the buyer putting it in their purchase agreement that you're not factoring in. So it's an estimate, but I would say, you know, probably between one, one and a half percent um, should should do it just depending on what all the buyers asking for. And that's going to vary and, by state. And he can ask his, his agent to provide him an estimate, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Give him yeah, all those numbers that. of what's common in your area. Yes, absolutely. Um, and, and, and you're going to, um, uh, where was I going with that? I was reading a question. Oh, it's something I always provide uh, with a seller. In fact, got one today for a seller is an estimated closing statement, right? I, I provide you know, the escrow company here in the state of California, how much you owe, what the commissions are going to be, um, you know, who's paying title, who's paying escrow, right? And and some of these things, we don't have certainty and that's how the buyer is going to present their offer. But in 20 years in doing this, we know how the buyer is going to present their offer, right? It's, it's it, there's no standard, there's no set, uh, but there's traditionally speaking a way that people do things. And so when I give my estimates, I estimate a fee for termite in there. I estimate the, that a buyer is going to ask for a home warranty. I estimate that you know the escrow fees are going to be split and that the seller is going to pay for title. I try to get it as close as possible to what I think the result's going to be. And if the termite is less or the buyer doesn't ask for a home warranty, then the seller is just going to net more money. But I want to give you worst case scenario so that you're not looking at me going, dude, this thing is way off. What happened? Um, so just trying to be more transparent in, in doing those. Jay Miller wants to know if there's any single ladies here tonight. Single Dina's ladies. Here. She's been here from the start. Yeah. We can start we, a bidding uh, war for Dina. Dude, we, we, we recruit single ladies for this place. This is what this is. Made up of single ladies. They're everywhere. Tell, tell the fellas, show up every week. Uh, Mike Piffs is termites, Southern California termites. Not everywhere, right? I, when I grew up in North Carolina, we didn't we didn't have termites. Um, we had other problems. Uh, but here in Southern California, termites. Um, uh, let's see. Mike, Mike, not Mike, Miles. Miles says, I, I bought a house and didn't overpay. I actually got $3,000 seller assistance. I'm in Pennsylvania, north of Philly. Should I be worried about raising interest rates and losing equity in the home? So, Josh, when you buy a property, should you be worried about the the value of your home on a daily basis? It's, no, it's not something to concern yourself with on a daily basis. It's not fun. If you become aware of the fact that your home has decreased in value, no one's going to enjoy that or like that. But remember a couple of things, every monthly payment, you're paying some principal down. So your equity position um, should be somewhat protected by that. Most importantly, you're a homeowner. You can do whatever you want. You can build a she shed, whatever uh, you want, a wood a shop. You can do anything. You can run around naked in the house. Anything. I, I think renters can do that too, though. But anything that you want. So you have pride of ownership. Um, you're paying the, the thing down, you're shortening the time until it is yours. So let's say even if you lost some equity over the next five years, you're still now in 25 years, you're going to own that home free and clear and have no housing payments. So there's all progress towards the future. Um, as long as you can handle the payment, 
you're comfortable being there for five, six, seven years and your family likes living there and it meets your needs. I wouldn't worry day to day about the prices, but understand that it's not going to make you happy if uh, if prices decrease. But you're saying you, you think you made a good buy. And I certainly wouldn't think of things that might happen to worry about. Worry about what's actually happening. He well, who worries before uh, worries too soon worries Sun Tzu, unnecessarily. Doing, yeah, something like is that. This Sun Tzu? Yoda. Yoda. Uh, Dixon has it all figured out. Uh, the worst is over, question mark. Wait in six months. Inflation is coming back. Oil just started going up again. Recession almost there. House is big trouble. House is big trouble, Josh. What do you Not think about inflation going trouble. back up? The, the concern, the things that the Fed cannot control energy and energy trickles into a lot of things. Mm -hmm. Oil is, is a concern. There are people who think that oil is going to $150. Smart people, a lot of them, not a few that think oil is going to $150. Here's what I will say about that, Josh. Those same people have been touting $150 barrel oil for 20 years. Yeah. Not, not maybe well, not the exact same people, but people. And, and I'm not saying that it can't happen. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying there's always these like the same people that says the Dow is going to zero, you know, interest rates are going to 10%. It's both sides. But anyway, where were you going with that? I interrupted. No, anything's possible. Uh, energy prices trickle down into everything. Um, oil, petroleum products go into fertilizers, goes into food. We don't know how long that situation is going to go <laughs> on in Russia. So is it possible that inflation takes back up? Yeah, it, it is. Um, is it probable? Likely? I don't know. Um, so I'm pretty comfortable with our forecast that we laid out here for the first six months of the year. And after we get through that time frame, let's get back here and have the conversation of where we go for the next six months. Long-term forecasts are really, really difficult. And why does the why does the Fed use the core CPI, Josh, versus the headline CPI that includes food and energy? Because they cannot control food and energy prices. Right. Um, the, so the when Fed they're talking, cannot. so when they're talking core CPI down to two percent, right? That's that's the goal. I mean, they'd like to get all of inflation down to two percent. Uh, but if core inflation is down at two percent, but headline inflation is reporting higher because of things like food and energy, then that probably puts the Fed in a position where they're not going to um, pause, pivot change their their action plan right because they're still not meeting the intended goal is that fair to say 100 and and, re and recessions are recessions inflationary or deflationary deflationary by nature they destroy demand you have to have demand to push prices higher so you know you look a lot of a lot of the people are talking inflationary depression uh you know stagflation things of that sort they're saying that things that cannot be controlled um, will overwhelm the economy. And one of those things being government debt, money comes away from productive purposes to pay back the debt. But I wish I had the chart here. Um, even with rates where they are right now, the percentage of GDP that goes to debt service is way lower than it was in the 90s, way lower. And we've seen nothing but lower rates and moderate growth. Like if you look from 1990 to now, we have below trend growth relative to the first, you know, the, the prior 50 to 60 years, we're not seeing three, four, 5% annualized GDP growth. And that's a bad thing. You would rather have higher interest rates, greater GDP growth, greater wage growth, um, 
it, it spreads prosperity through the economy and through all households better, but we don't have that. So do I think that's going to happen? I do not. Is it a possibility? Certainly. And we should watch the things that would have to happen for that to be true. Michael comes back, comes off the top rope and says, if oil didn't hit 150, with an, those elbow. with an elbow says, if oil didn't hit 150, those couple months after the Ukraine war broke out, it ain't happening. So that's a fact, Jack. There you go. Count on it. Uh, Fred, Fred says, I'm shopping for a loan now. Local lender is offering me a 7% interest rate, but I have internet brokers saying they can get me 5% and even 4% without paying for points. How is that? Because they're full of shit. <laughs> do, we have, do we have other questions? Is that the last question? No, no. So, okay. An so. internet broker. So just when you say an internet broker, who are you talking to? You filled out a form online. Your phone rang like 9,000 times for the next three days. And you talked to a kid who couldn't get a job at McDonald's, but got a seat in the call center. And he's going to tell you anything to get you to complete the application. And the funny thing here, Fred, is you're kind of giving me both ends of it. You're saying the local lenders offering 7%, like 7% was two, three months ago. Um, you know, anyone with a credit score, like here, I have a client, she's coming off a divorce, 590 something credit score, with do an FHA manual underwrite, and she's gonna be looking at like six and eight, six and a quarter. 7% is very high in the current market. Um, so if you're looking at a conventional loan with a lower credit score, it could be that high. So maybe we look at an FHA to get you something better. But the, the whole thing, I, I didn't need to know who you talk to when you're hearing someone say 4%. 4%, really. The na national average, depending on who you look at, Optimal Blue, National Mortgage News, Freddie Mac was 6.1% last week. So someone has money 2% cheaper than that. So if one person could lend it 2% cheaper and make money, don't you think there would be a few people out there lending it 1% cheaper and making a ton of money? You're just talking to someone who is flat out lying to you. So you just hang up the phone and move on. I would talk to a couple of more local people, talk to a bank, talk to a broker, talk to a credit union, depending on who you talk to, because you should be able to get better than 7%. But like I can tell you, if you want to pay a bunch of points on an FHA or a VA right now, you can get it uh, slightly under 5%, but your zero point stuff for the best qualified borrowers around five and a half, zero points for a really well-qualified borrower, conventional six and an eight, six and a quarter. So 7% is too high, but people talking to online are just lying to you. Fred, there's a link scrolling right now. Go to that link. Fill it out. You'll get in touch with somebody that Josh and I both know, like, trust that will give you an honest answer. And then you can use it to compare to the the other people that you've talked to and, and have a realistic quote, but more importantly, a, a point of comparison. So hopefully that is helpful for you. Uh, Aaron is in the San Fernando Valley, uh, says there's no inventory. Looks like housing prices are being reduced. Seems like the average could be down 20% by the end of year. Thoughts? I don't think there's any world in which you see home prices down by 20% by the end of the year, um, unless that home is significantly overpriced to start with. Just my two cents. Now, I will go out on a limb and say, I don't know San Fernando Valley like I know my market, uh, but I do know, you know, the fact that you said there's no inventory um, tells me that supply and demand, right? I mean, unless you have an over um, amount of supply, unless you have more supply than, than, than you have demand by a significant margin, you're not going to see huge price cuts like that um, unless there is something else going on. But I know several area uh, agents that work that market. So if you need somebody, reach out. Josh, we're at that point in the show where you're not feeling well. 
Um, you stayed on longer than you than you said you would. Um, I can know, suffer only, with only you guys. Only ninety-eight people have liked alone. the show, so clearly no one's finding any value here or likes us. So I think it is that point where we're probably just going to get out of here. Um, well, hold on. You have, we got we got a couple of a no, couple of man, quick, we can't quick go questions. Back, bro. We can, people we don't can, like us. They're not hitting the thumbs up or telling their friends about us, Josh. So just tell have, your friends about us. They we have just one minute to get us up circle. over hundred. Okay, wait, wait. Now we we've got. This is a good one. Michael Michael's back, kind of following up on the last question. Um, interest rates, where are they at? So Michael says, speaking of brokers, mine saying I can get three point nine nine on the first year of a two one. Is he pulling my leg? It seems too low. If the seller is giving you the money to cover the two one buy down. That means your interest rate is really five point nine nine. 5.99 is possible. I would need to know more about the details, but 5.99 without paying any points above and beyond the buy down fee is like best case, awesome borrower, big down payment, 800 credit score. So the part that, that I question here is he then follows up and says, the broker's been sort of combative. Every time I ask for the loan estimate, he gives me the runaround. Took me telling him I might go with someone else for him to finally get it. So don't get hung up on a loan estimate when you actually have the property in process. When you have a property, we have everything. We have three days to get you a loan estimate. I can give you all of the details in a fee worksheet that is easier to follow and understand. We've talked about this on the show before. The only portion of the loan estimate that you're concerned with when you're shopping for a loan is your interest rate and box A. Box A are those are the things that are controlled by the broker or the lender. So I can show you when I give you the fee worksheet, these are the box A items. So with that loan estimate, Michael, Look and see what's in box A. Is there a cost above and beyond the cost of the 2-1 buy down, which depending on the terms of everything else is about 1.75%. So if they're charging you more than that, then there's more cost to, to getting that to the 5.99. But here's the thing. No one should be combative. We just opened a loan this morning for a client of mine. We had the question before Florida. Um, the licensed loan officer in my company in Florida is going to help her. She didn't know that we had the ability to do that. And was doing a loan with a guy that she's sending me texts like he's basically threatening her. I'm like, who does this? Who talks to their clients that way? The, her realtor had reached out to the guy and the guy goes, what's she going to do? Go somewhere else? I'm like, yeah, she's going to go somewhere else. So don't, don't put up with that. I mean, people can be busy. Don't expect someone to answer your calls in five minutes, get back to your email in two minutes, but same day is very reasonable. Getting you numbers to look at in comparison within a day of receiving your documentation, very reasonable. If someone won't put that in writing, that's problematic, especially when you don't have a property because the numbers I give you, I'm not bound to those. They need to be indicative of what you're going to do because you're going to expect them to be in the range. If rates improve between when you get a property, you're going to expect them to be better than what I showed you. If rates get worse and you see that in the news, you're going to expect this to be slightly worse, but no one should be combative with you. Uh, Kim says, I want to leave and go watch White Lotus. She's right. Hey, I'm on season you got six two episodes tonight. tonight. The best six part episodes. is, dude, this is my kind of series. Six episodes? Like, that's fantastic. I, I can I can do a series like that. It's like Josh tells me, you know, a, a show and then there's five seasons in there each episode and there's 10 episodes and they're all an hour long. Like, no, I don't want any part of that. I don't care how good it is. But here we are. Season two starts tonight. Um, Jay Miller says, what markets do you guys do? So Josh serves all of California um, as well as the potential to serve some other states and me for selling real estate. Southern California, primarily Orange County, Long Beach, um, that area. So 
Um, if you need help in the hey, area, reach out. Yep. Jeb, we've still got 250 more people here. And we've talked about this. Jeb generates leads around the country. And those get farmed out to good people that he knows, that I know around the country. And we're looking at changing it up. What I am thinking of doing is Washington, Oregon, Arizona, Colorado, Utah, Texas, and probably Tennessee and Florida. What do you guys think about that? Do you have any additional states that you guys would like to see me uh, be Jeb's preferred professional for above and beyond California? Bro, you're going to be working like 25 hours a day. It's going to be fantastic. Josh is going to show up here with uh, sleeping. What happened to Josh? Oh, he died. He did too many loans that month. <laughs> uh, Rick, what are your thoughts on Open Door? I think they're garbage. And I'm not saying that because they're a competitor. I'm saying that because they look at what they, the price that they'll give you and the fees that they charge to get you there. It's, it's excessive. Um, it's it, the way more money to go through them as a seller than it is a traditional real estate agent, in my opinion, um, for most markets out there. So that's my thoughts. But anyway, we're going to end on that. Josh, um, it is 646. Do us a favor. If you like what you hear here, hear, hear. If you like what we're saying here, uh, but like more detail on more specific items about home buying, want to become the educated home buyer, there's a podcast out there that will get you there. Go check it out. The audience is growing. If you don't get in now, you might get left behind, people. And you want to get in. You want to get in when it's early. And that's where we are. We you're want the, you in. You're in the we want to have a conversation right there. We want to have a conversation. So get it's in there. Start asking stage. questions. We will get in and, and answer questions there. You don't have to wait. Uh, every week. There you go. Check out the community, uh, building that community on Circle. Like we mentioned, that link is in the description. Check that out as well. Um, the referral link is scrolling the bottom. We'll be back next week to do the same thing over again. Josh, any final words here as the, we exit the, tonight? The final word, if you're all caught up on White Lotus, go out to Amazon Prime and watch Mad Dogs, which is even better than White Lotus. It might be my favorite little streaming series of all time, but it's crazy. Be prepared. It's going to pucker you a little bit. Ooh, pucker, huh? All right. Uh, anyway, I was I was going to go somewhere. I decided not to because Be careful. It, probably not right for the show. It was a White Lotus comment, but I'm keeping away from it. Uh, anyhow, guys, thanks for being here. Thanks for the support. We appreciate you. Um, we will see you again next week. Adios. Thanks for listening to The Educated Home Buyer. Want to connect with us or to a local expert in your area? Please reach out at theeducatedhomebuyer.com slash expert. If you found any value today, please be sure to rate and review us on your favorite podcast platform. In addition, we ask that you share it with your friends and subscribe to us on YouTube. And make sure to follow us on social media. Thanks again for listening.